0: If you like listening to my conversations with interesting people, you'll love listening to them or watching them on Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get access to these interviews early and ad free, as well as bonus episodes from my YouTube channel and exclusive series you can't find anywhere else. Sign up for Nebula by clicking the link in the description or go to nebula.tv/conversations with Joe to support the podcast and help promote content that matters. This video is brought to you by Curiosity Stream and Nebula. In a previous video on this channel, I talked about the Voyager golden record and how a bunch of scientists, including Carl Sagan, got together to try to figure out exactly how you could communicate to, say, an alien species who might happen to run across it at some point. That potential was small, (laughs) more of a thought experiment really, a message in a bottle if you will. But it really brought home exactly how difficult it would be to communicate to another civilization or another species. They created a golden record with instructions on one side explaining how to play it, and also took from the Pioneer plaques by showing what our bodies look like, the Earth's position in the solar system, and the Sun's position relative to 15 pulsars, along with a unit of measurement based on the hyperfine transition of the hydrogen atom. This was a welcome signal, and a map of how to find us. Some did not agree with that idea, but what if we were trying to do the opposite? What if, instead of trying to tell aliens how to get here, we are telling them to make sure and stay away? Like, what if something terrible had happened here on Earth, and we are trying to send out a signal telling them to stay as far away from possible, or else they would risk imminent harm? Like, how do you tell some future civilization or species not to come here without only igniting their curiosity and making it more likely that they'll come here? Please Nothing to see here! This is the exact problem facing the nuclear industry when it comes to nuclear waste. Spent nuclear fuel will remain radioactive for tens of thousands of years, and believe it or not, we don't really have a solution for that. Seriously, all nuclear waste around the world is being held in temporary storage until a permanent solution can be found. It's kind of mind-blowing. There is a storage facility being constructed right now in Finland called the Onkalo Deep Geographic Repository, It's a series of tunnels in a geographically quiet area that they hope will start storing fuel around 2024, and the plan is to continue to store fuel there for 100 years, after which it'll be filled in with bentonite clay and sealed deep underground in the rock forever. But this is the only storage facility of its kind being built right now. There's definitely a lot of not-in-my-backyard mentality when it comes to this stuff. So yeah, (laughs) it's a problem. But it does make you ask, if there's so much energy left in this spent nuclear fuel, it seems like we'd be able to do something with all that, right? Turns out there are some ideas. The term nuclear waste conjures up images of yellow barrels tipped over with glowing green goo leaking out of it. And maybe a three-eyed frog in the water next to it. Thanks, The Simpsons. Commercial nuclear plants currently produce 2,000 metric tons of nuclear waste a year in the U.S. 80,000 metric tons in total, and 240,000 tons have been produced globally. That... sounds bad. And it is. But nuclear waste is not just some monolithic thing. There's lots of different types of nuclear waste. Some scarier than others. There's low-level waste, which includes lightly contaminated protective clothing, tools, and whatnot. Intermediate level waste includes higher contaminated filters, rags, medical tools, steel reactor components, and many other items. There's waste incidental to reprocessing, which refers to waste byproducts that result from reprocessing spent nuclear fuel, more on that in a bit. Uranium mill tailings are the residues remaining after the processing of natural ore to extract uranium and thorium. And high level waste is irradiated or used nuclear reactor fuel. And how these different types of nuclear waste break down is actually pretty interesting. 90% 90% of the nuclear waste we produce every year is low-level waste, the clothing and tools and whatnot. Out of the remaining 10%, 7 is intermediate-level leftover reactor components, and 3% is high-level waste. This is the spent fuel. Now, check this out. That 3% makes up 95% of the radioactivity of nuclear waste. All this is only 5% of the radioactivity. And we're not worried about that so much. That's not nearly as dangerous as the high-level stuff. It's got a half-life of a few hundred years, and we've got a few places around the country that we store that successfully. But storing that other 3%, the transuranics and plutonium and that kind of thing, that has a half-life of 24,000 years. That's a whole other thing. Like, we can keep records of waste locations for a few hundred years. That's that's no problem. But 24,000 years? That's literally five times longer than recorded human history so yeah this is problematic stuff and we've been making it for 60 years and in that time we've come up with a solid plan for how to deal with it here's what that plan looks like now to be fair there there was a plan for a while it was called the yucca mountain nuclear waste site in nevada but as of right now yucca mountain has been stalled for more than a decade They spent over $9 billion on it already, and it's estimated it would cost another $15 billion to finish it. Now, there was a lot of politicking and nimbyism from the people in Nevada not really wanting all that in their neighborhood and whatnot. That's to be expected, but there were some other problems that came along as well. Like the fact that it's on Native American land. Because of course it is. Also, it's on a fault line. I don't know how that got overlooked. Some environmental studies have concluded that the risk of contaminating groundwater is a lot higher than they originally expected. Oh, and here's the best part, it's not big enough. It's not big enough to hold the nuclear waste we've already created, much less what we're going to be creating in the coming years. So in lieu of having a permanent spot to store this waste for the next 24 millennia, all of this waste is just piling up in the nuclear power plants where it was first made. What happens is after its useful life is over, it spends years, even decades, cooling in a cooling pool so that its heat gets down low enough, and then it gets put in dry casks for permanent storage there on site. Dry casks that are rated for 200 years. That's less than 24,000. So yeah, Yucca Mountain was a mess, but all of these projects are messes. There is not one single permanent storage solution on planet Earth for the nuclear waste that we've created. The one that's closest to completion is the one that's being built in Finland that I was talking about earlier. Some people consider this to be the first thing ever built by humans that was meant to outlast our species, though the ancient Egyptians might take issue with that. And by the way, before anybody asks in the comments, I know some of you are already writing this down, um, launching it into the sun? Not a great idea. Space agencies are generally really cautious about putting anything radioactive uh, up into space because if something were to go wrong say if there was a, a probe with an rtg in it with some plutonium in there and something went wrong and it blew up in the atmosphere then that would just spray plutonium all over the place plus it's just not practical there's 240,000 metric tons of nuclear waste around the world if we were to launch all that into the sun it would be a lot of launches for example the starship we're always talking about how much it can lift into orbit it can take up 100 tons uh, that would be 2500 launches Basically, a launch a day for 6.8 years. So outside of deep storage and launching it into the sun, (laughs) there are some other things that we can do with nuclear waste, but before I get to that, we kind of have to have a little bit of a primer of what exactly this high-level waste is. These are basically the spent rods that are in the nuclear power plant that is used to boil water, that creates steam, turns a turbine, generates electricity, and turns your bread into toast. And these fuel rods are basically enriched uranium that um, get blasted with a neutron, that splits one atom, that sends off more neutrons, that splits more atoms, and on and on and on. It takes up to eight years for the chain reaction to make its way all the way through the fuel, but surprisingly, when it's all said and done, 95% of the energy is still in that fuel. And that is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. I mean, Over eight years, all the homes, all the businesses that that powered, and then when it's all said and done, that only used 5% of the potential energy in that fuel? It's crazy. Seems like there should be a way to get some use out of the rest of that energy. And there is. It's called reprocessing. Reprocessing is basically recycling nuclear fuel. It's popular in France, but it's illegal in the United States. Which is kind of nuts, because recycling and reprocessing nuclear fuel can actually reclaim about 96% of it to be reused again in nuclear plants. And that final 4% that can't be reused is vitrified, or turned into a type of glass. And that type of glass reduces the amount of radioactivity and the the half-life of it down to about 300 years instead of thousands. So it's not just about getting all that potential energy out of the fuel, it's also about, you know, reducing that future danger we're so worried about. Plus, there's all kinds of other materials in nuclear fuel that are potentially valuable. Basically, the goal is to reuse as much of it as possible. And to keep the amount of it that's going to be radioactive for thousands of years down to a minimum. Of course, if you recycle nuclear waste, you're just going to put that into nuclear reactors that are going to create... more nuclear waste. But there's an option that would burn up a whole lot more of that fuel and leave a lot less behind. A company called Oaklo has developed a type of reactor that they call their Aurora reactor, which works off a certain type of fuel called high-assay low-enriched uranium, or HALEU. Hello, halley, halley, hello, 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 you, hello, hello, hello. Add an X on the end of it, make it Cajun. When uranium is extracted, 99% of it is U-238, which is the non-fissile form of uranium. It can't be used in conventional nuclear reactors, although it can be pounded with neutrons and turned into plutonium-239 in breeder reactors. But it's that 1% of mined uranium that makes up uranium-235, which is the fissile form that can be used in most nuclear reactors. So you take that 1% and enrich it up to about 5%, and that gives you the low-enriched uranium, or LEU. It's what's used in most conventional light water reactors. Oh, and by the way, the highly enriched uranium, or HEU, that's used in nuclear weapons, that's 90% enriched. So, some people are worried that more nuclear uh, power reactors are going to lead to a proliferation of nuclear weapons. Um, It's a whole different type of enrichment, so... no. Besides, we've already got enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world a thousand times over, so... that's a few more. Anyway, high-assay, low-enriched uranium is somewhere between LEU and HEU. It's around 20% concentrated. Uh, assay is another word for concentrate. So now, if you ever want to talk about the concentration of something, but really want to say the word S, problem solved. The advantages of HALA... HALU... Heli, Heliu, Heliu. I'm going to go with Heliu. The advantage of Heliu fuel is that they pack more of a punch so that the reactors can be smaller and lighter. I talked about small modular reactors in the last video. Many of those use Hallyu fuel. The cool part is they don't have to be refueled as often. They can burn uh, for up to 20 years. They have a higher burn-up rate, which means it uses less fuel and has a lot less nuclear waste left over. And this fuel can be made with reprocessing. So you take this high-level nuclear waste that we're talking about, reprocess it, put it back in a reactor for up to 20 years, power some homes off of it, and then have a fraction of the waste left over when you're done. And to that end, the company that I was just talking about, Oklo, they have a deal with the Idaho National Laboratory to take their spent nuclear waste, reprocess it, and turn it into fuel for this Aurora reactor. This is the first deal of its kind, and the Aurora reactor is really cool. It it, it looks like more of an A-frame house in the middle of nowhere. It's a tiny demonstration plant that produces 1.5 megawatts, sort of a micro-reactor. In fact, they refer to it as a fission battery. And speaking of batteries, that's the perfect segue to our last use for nuclear waste, nuclear batteries. Alright, so you're probably familiar with the term photovoltaic. That's where you make electricity, or voltage, by using light, or photons. This is why solar panels are often called PV panels. Well, something you might be less familiar with is beta-voltaics, which similarly is when you make voltage, or electricity, by absorbing beta particles, or the particles that are produced by radioactive decay. Like, take this video of a Peltier chamber. This is a device that lets you see the radiation coming off a piece of uranium. Each one of those streaks, those little atomic bullets, are beta particles and some alpha particles so imagine if you created a box around that piece of uranium lined with beta voltaic cells that absorb the energy from all those little bullets and turn them into electricity that's basically how beta voltaic cells work and you know what gives off a lot of beta radiation nuclear Nuclear waste last year some news made its way around the internet that a team at the university of bristol were making nuclear batteries out of diamonds Beta-voltaic cells are nothing new. They've been around since the 1950s. Uh, Remember in the last video when I was talking about how everybody was all super psyched about nuclear power for a while there? Those were often made out of strontium-90, but the team at Bristol were able to take carbon-14 out of the irradiated graphite in the cores of nuclear reactors and compress those down into diamonds. Diamonds encased in a beta-voltaic shield that absorbed all the radiation and produces energy for decades. Now these are small right now very small probably just enough to power like a smoke detector or tiny sensors and whatnot but there's a lot of possibility here for like medical implants because it's kind of hard to change the battery in something when it's inside your body but these batteries are scalable all you have to do is add more diamonds to it so maybe someday you'll have a phone that just powers itself or a car the caveat here is that the graphite from the nuclear reactors is that low level waste not the high level waste that we're really worried about but Who's to say that a similar idea couldn't apply to that high-level waste? What if all those barrels of nuclear waste could be lined with beta-voltaics or gamma-voltaics and then when we store them all underground, it just becomes a giant battery that just feeds energy back into the grid? There's probably more to it than that, but come on! Who's with me? I imagine a lot of these not-in-my-backyard people would change their tune if there was a giant battery that was powering half of their homes for a thousand years. The point is, there's options. I mean, at least you can reprocess nuclear waste and get some more use out of it as opposed to, say, fossil fuels where you just consume it and it goes up into the atmosphere and mucks things up. Unless you consider carbon capture a form of reprocessing. But I digress. Nuclear energy is a big topic, which is why I've done two videos on it this week and I've barely even scratched the surface. But as we continue to focus on reducing carbon emissions and nuclear energy technologies continue to evolve, the nuclear waste problem is something we're going to have to deal with. Because you can only kick this can down the road so far before it spills radioactive magma everywhere. But yeah, all of our nuclear waste is still in some kind of temporary storage right now. After 60 years of making this stuff, we still have no permanent solution. Maybe it's time we got one. So this topic is fascinating to me. I wound up going down a lot of different rabbit holes, too many to include in one video. So I actually have an extra segment that I'm uploading to Nebula. For those who don't know, Nebula is a streaming service that I'm a part of, along with many other talented educational YouTubers like Isaac Arthur and Real Engineering, it's a place where we can be free to experiment with ideas that the almighty algorithm might keep us from doing on our channels. This means longer versions of videos, ad-free, so this sponsor read wouldn't be on there, and Nebula Originals that you can't find anywhere else. Like my Nebula Original Mysteries of the Human Body. We've got three episodes out, we're working on the fourth one. It's pretty great. I'm happy with it. So there's that. So yeah, Nebula's great, but what's even greater is that you get it for free when you sign up for Curiosity Stream. Curiosity Stream's got thousands of documentary series from some of the best documentary filmmakers from around the world. It was created by the guys behind the Discovery Channel, so it's kind of like what the Discovery Channel was meant to be. It'll it'll suck you in. Just just be prepared to get stuck watching all kinds of nerd stuff. And you, dear viewer, can get this bundle for 26% off, which means it comes to a grand total of $14.79. That's per year, not per month. That is $14.79 for an entire year, two streaming services. It's nuts. So if you're curious, just go over to curiositystream.com slash Joe Scott to get started. Yeah, it's, it's seriously the best streaming bundle you'll find on the entire planet. And you get some extra stuff from me. So there's that. So curiositystream.com slash Joe Scott. Go check it out. Big thanks to CuriosityStream for sponsoring this video, and a huge shout out to the answer files on Patreon that are forming an awesome community, supporting the channel, helping me grow my team, and just being all together awesome people. Uh, we've got some new people that have joined. I'm going to murder their names real quick. We've got James Redd, Ellie Lithian-Mazarez, uh, Christopher Wazor... Oh, Christopher war Yeah. Cyprian Hirle, Don Fairchild, Ron Whiteclough, <laughs> Lizzie, Jimmy Chevry, Alexander T Nelson, Laura Bouchard, Clark, Justin C. Arley, uh R- Robin Tennant, Colburn, Janet Turner, Jay Furman, Bill Barfield, Get Swifty, Tony Boerhaus, uh, Seth Kukowski, Welcome back, uh, Keenan Phoenix, Drew Helvie, and Alan Beckett. I ruin some of those. Thank you guys for joining. If you would like to join them, get early access to videos, exclusive live streams, and just join an awesome community, you can go to patreon.com slash answerswithjoe. Please like this video if you liked it, and if this is your first time here, Google thinks you'll like this one, so you might want to go check that one out, or go look at any of the others on the side that have my face on them, and if you enjoy them, I invite you to subscribe. I come back with videos every Monday. Also, I haven't shouted out the store in a while. I've got some shirts there. This shirt, you can buy it at the store. Answersofjoe.com store. Uh, there's also hoodies, mugs, stickers. Uh, what else? All kinds of stuff. Posters. Fun, fun designs and whatnot. You, it supports the channel and they look cool. So go get it. I'm very rusty with my sales pitch, aren't I? Anyway, you guys go on out there. Have an eye-opening rest of the week. Stay safe and I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.